Hey friends, welcome to the Love Intently podcast, where each week I bring you relationship experts, inspiring couples, and first-class relationship thought leaders from around the world. I'm on a mission to explore what exactly makes love last and to empower a generation to have strong relationships. I'm your host, Sophie Kwok, the chief love enthusiast who believes that relationships are the most important part of our lives. And if you're looking to build a stronger relationship or to take a proactive approach towards love, loveintently.com hosts an array of articles, podcasts, resources, and love tips to help you build and keep strong relationships. I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Today's episode is a special one as we bring on one of Love Intently's cherished advisors. Dr. Lisa Neff is an associate professor in the Human Development and Family Sciences Department at the University of Texas in Austin. Her current research explores how marriages develop and change over time, and her research aims to identify the relationship processes associated with successful marriages and to understand how and when stressors external to a relationship, such as work stress or financial difficulties hinder a couple's efforts to engage in healthy relationship behaviors. She's also begun a new line of research exploring relationships and dating later in life. Dr. Lisa Neff has been a champion and mentor of Love Intently and our love tips, where we send you text messages with personalized love tips to empower you and your relationship to thrive. We make relationship science and these research-based frameworks easy to implement into your day-to-day life by taking into account where you live, whether you have kids, all these different factors about you and your partner, and we personalize each message to you. You can learn more about our love tips at loveintently.com. Dr. Lisa Neff is a wealth of knowledge, insanely kind, and a true champion of those that she teaches, and of course, love intently. So without further ado, I can't wait to share this episode with you. Here's the one and only Dr. Lisa Neff. On the topic of how to best handle conflict, do you have any um, research on that or any best practices that you would advise couples to look into? Yeah, so we have some uh, work that we're doing now looking at what's called you know expressive suppression or conflict avoidance. Because sometimes there is this in the popular media, I think conflict gets a bad rap. People hear the word conflict and they think, conflict is bad. You know, we shouldn't have conflict in our relationship. That's a sign of a problematic relationship. And so because of that, people tend to be afraid of conflict, to shy away from it. And one response couples may have is they may choose to suppress or hide their feelings from the partner with the goal of just trying to avoid conflict. So instead of speaking up and addressing an issue, they might actually hide their feelings from their partner just so they can avoid the unpleasantness because even well-managed conflict isn't always pleasant, Mm -hmm. but uh, so they can avoid the unpleasantness conflict. Unfortunately, what we have found is that that can create even more problems in the long term than the conflict itself. So we have some work where we're comparing the immediate and long-term effects of conflict avoidance versus conflict engagement. 
So what we are doing is we're using this daily diary research. So every night, couples complete a survey and they indicated if they argued with their partner that day. They also indicated if they had actually hid their feelings from their partner to avoid having a fight with their partner that day. And not surprisingly, if you look at the short-term effects of each of those strategies, what you find is, guess what? On days when you argue with your partner, you are less happy in your relationship, and so is your partner. No one's surprised by that. We also found on days when you suppress your feelings, when you hide your feelings from your partner, you're also less happy in the relationship. But interestingly, the effects of arguing are stronger than the effects of suppression. So in the moment, it feels worse to argue than it does to hide your feelings. Even though they both feel bad, arguing feels worse. But now let's go out six months and see what happens over time. So we looked at the frequency with which people hid their feelings and the frequency with which they argued. And what we were predicting was if that influence changes in their feelings of intimacy in the relationship, so that feeling of being understood and connected to the partner. And we also looked at whether it influenced changes in the severity of the marital problems that couples reported facing. Because you can imagine if you're always hiding your emotions to avoid conflict, you're opening up the possibility that nothing is going to get resolved, right? Things might fester and grow worse as opposed to being managed and perhaps being able to move past them. And so what we found was when you looked at the long-term effects, individuals who hid their feelings to a greater degree experienced big declines in their intimacy and increases in the severity of their marital problems over time. And that was true for both people in the relationship. So if I am hiding my feelings, both me and my partner report that we become less intimate over time and that our problems get worse. However, couples who reported arguing more frequently, the frequency of arguing did not predict changes in intimacy or in the severity of problems. So it did not make things worse. Only suppression had these detrimental effects on the relationship, which suggests that, you know, and I, I don't want to say you should always pick on your partner, right? <laughs> there is clearly, you know, there is some wisdom to pick your battles. Right. But but it is the case that you don't want to use uh, suppression or conflict avoidance as a regular strategy in your relationship, that actually it's healthier to talk out issues. And of course, you should talk them out in a more constructive manner, but you want to address those issues and move past them as opposed to just keeping quiet and letting them fester because ultimately, even though your goal is to avoid conflict, you're actually creating more problems in the long term. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because we can tend to take something and run with it with our minds if we don't speak out the lies. Because a lot of the times I even find in my own relationships or in, in couples that I've talked to, they will assume one thing and the partner will mean something completely different. And had they talked about it in the moment, they would have recognized that. Mm -hmm. But we just kind of let our thoughts run away with us. That's so fascinating. Another thing that I, I know that you've done a lot of study around stress and how couples mm -hmm. handle that. And I want, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that if you could talk. Absolutely. So yeah, a big area of research that I've been working on is trying to understand how the stressors that we experience outside of the marriage, our work stress, dealing with a sick family member, uh, financial difficulties, how all of these life stressors 
can spill over and affect the way we think and behave within our marriage. And I've been very interested in this um, and found that basically stress is a double whammy for a relationship. So it can hurt relationships in two ways. The first thing stress does is it can give us more problems to have to manage within the relationship. So if you think about it this way, if you have couples who are facing a lot of financial stress, for instance, you know, we know about economic disparities. We know that low income couples actually have a higher uh, rate of divorce than couples from higher or middle class incomes because a lot of it, uh, they're faced with very different types of stressors that they must navigate in their lives. And you can imagine if you're facing a lot of financial difficulties or if maybe you're just working very long hours, you have a lot of work stress, every minute you spend coping with that stress outside the marriage is a minute you're not attending to your relationship, right? There's only 24 hours a day and we have to allot that time. And so if we are using our energy and resources and directing them towards managing that external stress, it just gives us less time to build that emotional capital in the relationship we talked about earlier. We have less time to engage in that leisure activity with our partner, to, you know, share that laugh together, to have that date night, you know, those things that can help build the relationship. And so it can, when people are under more stress, they tend to report less active sex lives, less affection, you know, less time spent together, just less time for one another. And so it, it creates more problems that they have to navigate. But the other thing that stress does, um, and this will probably resonate because we've all been there, is that when we're using our energy and resources to cope with a lot of stress, it's, it's fatiguing, right? And it's exhausting. And so to the extent that we're using our energy and resources to cope with that stress, it leaves us with less energy to effectively navigate problems in the home when we're interacting with our partner. And the idea is doing the right thing in your relationship. So those things like biting your tongue when your partner snaps at you, letting go if your partner engages in a minor transgression, just, you know, forgive and forget, move on, talking about difficult issues in that calm and constructive manner. All of these behaviors have been shown to be effortful behaviors. They require a little bit more self-control compared to more selfish or destructive behaviors, right? So if you have had a long, exhausting day at work and you come home and your partner is a little bit snippy with you, our gut reaction is to snap back. Mm -hmm. It takes an extra ounce of self-control to bite our tongue and formulate a more constructive response in that moment. But if we're incredibly fatigued and, you know, have exhausted our resources elsewhere, we might not have the wherewithal to engage in that more constructive response. And uh, so what we're finding is that when individuals are under stress, they tend to behave worse in the relationship. So for instance, compared to times, and we compare people when they're under stress versus not under stress. So we can see how behavior changes from those stress to non-stress states. And we find that when people are under more stress, they tend to make more blaming attributions for their partner's behavior. So if you do something negative, I am more likely to say you did that because you're a jerk as opposed to I know that wasn't really your fault and you didn't mean to be a jerk. Mm. We also, some researchers have shown that if you manipulate people's stress levels and then have them discuss a source of conflict in the relationship, 
when couples are made to feel stress, the quality of their conversations declines by 40%. Wow. So they become less effective at talking constructively about those problems. So there's this idea that when we're under a lot of stress, it tends to sap our energy and resources and make it more difficult to do the things we need to do to have a healthy relationship. And what's important to note is that even couples who generally communicate well communicate worse under stress. So a colleague of mine, Hannah Williamson, was looking at the predictors of communication, good communication in couples. Because we all know about things, um, so for instance, family of origin, sort of the models you had growing up is going to influence how you talk about problems. Things like maybe depression or personalities we talked about earlier. So she was comparing, she looked at family of origin, some of these personality factors, and was looking at how much do all of these different factors predict how well couples talk about tension and conflict in the relationship. And she found that the strongest predictor of couples' communication was stress and financial difficulties. It mattered more than family of origin, more than personality. So it has a tremendously powerful impact on it. So even couples who generally do the right thing exhibit worse relationship skills when they're under greater levels of stress. And this is really important when we start to think about interventions, because so often the message is, oh, well, if couples are struggling under stress, let's just teach them better communication and then that'll fix the problem, right? We just teach them how to, how to communicate better and then we send them home to their stressful lives and all will be okay. That will buffer them. However, this research is suggesting that actually might not work because communication seems to be a skill that suffers under stress. So it suggests that really we need to think about, like, interestingly, if you want to help couples have healthier relationships, maybe instead of just focusing on communication skills, you need to focus on stress management skills. If we can help couples alleviate some of their stress, that may uh, help them avoid some of these stress spillover effects we see. So is there anything that we can do to uh, learn how to better manage our stress through all of this? Well, it you know, there... There's a lot of possible answers. Um, we have looked at to give a ray of hope. Um, the idea that people can get better at managing stress in the relationship and reducing the stress spillover effect. So there's been research showing that if couples have some practice coping with small manageable stressors, it may help inoculate them against the effects of bigger stressors down the road. It's actually known as stress inoculation theory. So you can compare it to a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. So how does a vaccine work? The idea is when you give someone a vaccine, you're giving them a weakened form of the virus so that their body can develop the antibodies to fight it off. And then if they're ever exposed to a stronger form of the virus in their everyday life, they have, the body has the antibodies ready to more effectively fight off the illness. So the idea is stress can work in a similar way, that if couples work together to overcome small but manageable stressors, that practice can help make perfect. So they, the more they work together to overcome small stressors, the better they can get at facing the bigger stressors and reducing these stress spillover effects. Uh, so, for instance, in one study, we are looking at actually 
what influences couples' adjustment to the transition to parenthood? Because mm-hmm. as many parents out there know, that transition is very stressful on a relationship. It's a joyous time. It's a wonderful time. But it is a time of renegotiation, and a lot of stress comes with that transition. Absolutely. And so we were interested in understanding which couples weather that transition a, a bit better. And uh, one thing we found was we – so we followed newlywed couples from when they were first married – for the next several years. So we got couples prior to having children and we we're able to examine them through the transition of parenthood. And what we found was that couples who started the marriage with moderate levels of stress and who also had good communication skills, if both those things were true, they were happier after the transition of parenthood compared to couples who had only you know one or the other. So they were doing better, for instance, than couples who had low stress but good communication skills, which you might think those would be the best couples, but no, it seems like having some practice using those good communication skills to get through stress early in the marriage made them better at then navigating that stressful transition down the road. So moderate stress coupled with good communication skills led to a better transition compared to having little to no stress and good communication skills. Wow. And now I'm thinking, what are ways that we can create experiences <laughs> where they can experience a little bit more stress? I think life often throws that at us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is uh, really interesting, mm-hmm. but it makes a lot of sense on how if we have more practice earlier on on managing stress together and we become a good team on to kind of annihilating those stress factors on how it would better prepare us for when we do enter parenthood or other seasons where there's equal, if not more, stressors. Okay, y'all. I have something super exciting to share with you. How many of you guys enjoy a glass of wine or two during date night or girls' night? Well, let me introduce to you Wink, who makes it super easy to discover great wine from the comfort of your home, and that's W-I-N-C. Wink's wine expert selects wines matched to your taste, personalized for you, and ships it straight to your door. And it just starts at $13 a bottle. Did I mention there's no shipping cost? If you don't like a bottle they send you, they will replace the bottle with something that you love, no questions asked. And there's nothing quite like coming home to a bottle of wine that's selected just for you. All you have to do is fill out Wink's palette profile quiz, answer some simple questions that your average store clerk wouldn't ask or even translate into a recommendation. These questions include things like, how do you like coffee? Or how do you feel about blueberries? Then Wink sends wines curated to your taste. And the more wines that you rate, the more personalized your monthly selections become. Each month, there are new wines, like their insanely popular Summer Water Rosé. There's no membership fees. You can skip any month, cancel any time. Shipping is covered, and you can discover great wine today. All you have to do is go to wink.com, which is W-I-N-C.com, and we're giving you $22 off of your first shipment using a code LOVEINTENTLY, one word. And that's L-O-V-E-I-N-T-E-N-T-L-Y. Again, that's wink.com with a promo code of love intently for $22 off. And did I mention that's almost two bottles on the house? So really, you got nothing to lose. Try out some great wine. Tell us how it is. 
So, Lisa, have there been any research studies that have been in particularly surprising to you? Well, one recent study, um, uh, again, some colleagues, you know, coming out of my lab that we were uh, looking at that was really intriguing and especially relevant given social dynamics in today's day and age was looking at the importance of social networks on relationship well-being. And so essentially, this was a study where we were looking, first of all, we were looking at the daily association between experiencing conflict with your partner and your physiological responses. So going back to the idea that our relationships have a tremendous impact on our physiological health. So we found that on days when individuals experience more conflict with their partner, they exhibited a less healthy diurnal cortisol response. If you're not familiar with diurnal cortisol, basically cortisol is the body's stress hormone. And in healthy people, the way it works is when we wake up in the morning, our cortisol levels are really high. It's almost like our body's way of trying to get us into gear to get us through our day. So when we wake up, our cortisol levels tend to be at their highest. And then they steadily decline throughout the course of the day. So a very healthy pattern should be, you should see this steep decline in cortisol throughout the day. If you don't see that steep decline, it's associated with a whole host of other uh, health problems, immune problems, cardiovascular problems. And so you want to see this sort of diurnal pattern where cortisol starts high and declines. So that's what we found. On days when people had more conflict with their partner, they had that flatter cortisol slope throughout the day. They didn't have that decline, which suggested that people are responding powerfully to conflict in the relationship. But we found that this, the statistical term is this was moderated by whether or not people had a number of friends and family outside of the marriage that they felt they could turn to for support and comfort. And essentially what we found was that people who reported having more satisfying social networks outside their marriage, that association between their conflict and their cortisol completely disappeared. It wasn't just reduced. It was completely eliminated for those individuals, which really speaks to the importance of maintaining those friends and family outside the marriage. Mm. There's been a lot of research. Sociologists have noted that when couples get married today, they tend to isolate themselves more compared to couples in the past. Mm -hmm. So couples today are less likely to socialize with friends. They're less likely to belong to like uh, recreational groups and civic groups and religious organizations compared to decades past. So couples are becoming almost more of an island, so to speak. And these sort of findings suggest that that can be very harmful because having those friendships outside the marriage can help you respond to difficulties in the marriage in a healthier way. You know, in fact, one of my colleagues, uh, Eli Finkel, has talked a lot about the value of emotionships. And uh, basically, he's talking about the idea that rather than putting all your eggs in one basket, like all too often, couples were pair off and they'll expect their partner to be the end-all, be-all. I expect my partner to be my best friend, my lover, my sole support provider, my recreational partner, my racquetball partner, you know, all these different things. And that's a lot to put on one person. 
But if you spread out those roles throughout your social network, so you have the one friend who you play racquetball with, you have the one friend who you know you can cheer you up when you're feeling down, you have another friend who you like to go to the movies with, and you and you uh, have these different emotionships. People who have more of those functional relationships tend to be happier and healthier compared to those who have a, a smaller, more constricted uh, social network. Mm-hmm. So just the importance of those around us for our marriage, health, and happiness. Yeah, I, fi- I find that to be true in so many, in just our mental health in general, of the power of community, of true community around us. And it takes a lot of work, but just how worth it is and how it even impacts our marriage. Okay, well, we're going to wrap up here, but I have a few last questions. Okay, great. But before I go into that, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge you and thank you for doing the work that you do. It truly has been inspirational for me, but I know that so many couples and so many people have benefited and will benefit from your work. So just thank you for choosing to dive into here. <laughs> I know it's not easy, and I know there's probably other topics that – Uh, might be easier in one way or another. So thanks for doing the work that you do. Thank you. Uh, Okay. So last two questions. First one is, what is the best relationship advice that you could ever give or have received? Well, in terms of the best relationship advice I've ever received, it's sort of a funny anecdote. My PhD advisor, Ben Carney, gave it to me. And uh, one of the things we do in our research is we collect a lot of observational data of couples. So we videotape couples talking about important issues, and we learn how to code those observations for how well couples are communicating. And I remember one time Ben told me, whatever you do, do not go home and code your partner's speaking terms to you. So uh, definitely because you would find yourself when you're learning this coding scheme, I would be coding television shows. It's like that was negative. That was positive. That was a you know negative indirect. That was a negative direct and and all of this. And, and he was like, just don't do this to your partner. And I was like, that is excellent advice. <laughs> do you catch yourself sometimes? Sometimes, in your life. sometimes, but also coding yourself. Unfortunately, you know, all too often I know the codes, but it doesn't necessarily stop me from like, oh, what I just did was a negative direct. I should not have said it. Why did I just say that? Uh. Um, but yes, it does happen. Wow. Okay. And <laughs> the next question I have for you is what does it mean to love intently to you? I would say it's just to consider your relationship meaningfully that that you know we we always joke uh, that relationships are work and and they are work but not in a derogatory way but they are something that constantly has to be nurtured and tended to and we just need to think more intently about what we're doing and are we taking the time to have those everyday positive moments you know just you know having those that half an hour after our work day just to laugh together to do a little fun activity with our partner even though we're filled with our stressful lives and things that are distracting us and trying to take our attention away to very intently give some of our attention back to our partner and not take those relationships for granted Mm, that's so good Well, thank you, Lisa. It was a joy having you. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review so that others can join the conversation as well. On the next episode, we have a super fun, creative, and ambitious couple, Heather and Erin Hale. 
They share their beautiful journey through adoption, switching careers, being a stay-at-home dad, feeding into each other's creativity, and sharing vulnerably about not fitting into the gender norms. I absolutely adore my conversation with them, and I cannot wait to share with you. So until next time, with love and intention.